Since the beginning, members of the NC Advocates for Justice have been raising their voices, speaking out on behalf of those who go unheard, joining their voices to oppose injustice and support fair treatment for everyone under the law. With this podcast, Voices of NCAJ, we'll listen to those members, lawyers and legal professionals who founded the organization, whose dedication and energy kept it going and guided it through growth, change and challenges. Each conversation will inspire us to meet the future with a unified voice that channels the strengths and accomplishments of our organization. Welcome to Voices of NCAJ. This episode features one of our NCAJ Legends interviews recorded during Convention 2022. As part of our 60th anniversary celebration, each Legends episode allows a longtime member to tell their story and the story of NCAJ. Before we kick that off today, I'd like to remind you that our podcast is edited and engineered by our friends at Law Pods, a professional audio production company focused on helping lawyers make great sounding podcasts. They sweat all the details so you concentrate on the content. If you're thinking about podcasting, check them out at lawpods.com. They've made podcasting a breeze for us. Good afternoon, David. Good afternoon. Good to see you. As you know, I'm Philip Miller, practicing Raleigh, and am honored to sit here and talk to you today about the Academy. I'll probably call it the Academy. I'm old school like that. You probably are too. It's been a privilege of mine to see you practice over the years, and I've seen some of your trials and some big ones. So it's an honor to be here interviewing the great and powerful David Kirby. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) So, So why don't you start out and just tell us how'd you get involved with the Academy? when it happened and just how it all went down. Sure. Well, I when I finished law school, I clerked on the Court of Appeals. And when I finished clerking, I just hung a shingle out uh, in Raleigh. And I've been practicing for probably only three or four years. I was like a lot of young lawyers back then. Uh, I was just trying to feed myself. Everything that came in the door, I would do it. I was handling a lot of criminal defense. I was trying criminal cases. I was trying collection cases, I was trying small business cases, and I was trying a few PI cases. And I'd been practicing for maybe three or four years, and uh, one afternoon, Secretary buzzes me and says, there are two gentlemen out here to see you. And I said, who's there? And says, "Uh, well, it's Bill Thorpe and Howard Twiggs. And my first reaction was, you know, what have I done wrong, or what's going on here? But... Totally unexpected, out of the blue, no advance call whatsoever. And, you know, I was like every young lawyer in the state. Bill Thorpe was, he was almost a god out there. And uh, so was Howard. And these were people that I had heard about, read about, knew about. And I was I was really curious, what were they doing in my office? And they came in and, and just, you know, came in, sat down in my office and started talking to me and said, David, we're here from the North Carolina Academy of Trial Lawyers, and uh, we're here to ask you to become a member, that you need to become a member of this organization. Now, you already knew who they were. Did you know about the Academy? I I knew about the Academy primarily from the seminars. And I would would go and see Bill Thorpe and others lecture about cases or about subjects of the law. And candidly, that's how— I really learned how to practice law and particularly learned how to practice law, hopefully at a higher level and a more skillful level. But they came in and sat down and said, you need to join this organization. It's important you join this organization. 
and basically told me, it'll make you a better lawyer. And I wanted to do anything and everything I could do to become a better lawyer because I was like every young lawyer. I needed a GPS and a compass to find my way to the courtroom. And when I got there, I was stumbling my way through to try to, the, the best, the, the way you learn the best really in the courtroom is you make a mistake and the next case you try, you're not going to do that the next time. But these were highly skilled lawyers. They were the leaders in the, in the trial bar. And so I joined the organization and whatever successes I've had along the way, other than saying thank you for having good parents and, and giving me a great start in life, you know, I'd have to credit the academy for particularly the, the education and the inspiration in practicing law. And I can remember as a young lawyer, the academy had an office on Federal Street. They had a big bank of younger lawyers now might, even know, might not know what these are, but you used to have cassette tapes that you could plug into your car. And they had a huge bank of tapes. It was a wonderful, wonderful library. And it would be similar to what books on tape or something. Podcasts. Uh, right. And so I would go and check out lectures from the masters. And these included uh, Bill Thorpe, Charlie Blanchard, Howard Twiggs, but, but not just local lawyers. You also had national figures, uh, Jerry Spence, Leonard Ring, and others from all across the country. And they had a series of tapes called Million Dollar Arguments. And I w always wanted to figure out, okay, how did these guys ever get a million-dollar verdict? Because back in the 80s and going into the early 90s, people don't realize this today, but their Bill Thorpe had one of the few million-dollar verdicts in the state. When I got my first million-dollar verdict, which was in the early 90s, I think, or maybe late 80s, at the time in Wake County, there were two people who had a million-dollar verdict. It was uh, Bill Thorpe and John Edwards, and that was it. And the case that where I got my first million-dollar verdict was a uh, hot water heater explosion case or fire case. And I tried the case against Jim Blunt, who I thought was, he was the best defense lawyer, that is civil defense lawyer in the state. Jim Blunt, you know, had lost his last hundred trials and all this kind of stuff. And every time I'd go into a deposition with Jim Blunt or go into a courtroom with him, I, I spent most of my time just looking at him at all. And I can remember in that case, Philip, I was case only lasted about a week, maybe a little over a week, and I would put a witness on. And when I finished examining the witnesses, I, I thought, well, you know, that, that, went, that went pretty good. I feel pretty good about that. And I'd sit back and Bill, and uh, they'd get to cross-examination, and Blunt would get up there and eviscerate my witness. And after about three or four days of this, I'm saying to myself, I need to go do something else. Mm -hmm. I need to sell insurance. I need to, I mean, why am I doing this? I don't know that I can ever do what, you know, Jim Blunt's doing. And that was a great lesson to me in life. It was an incredibly difficult case. And one of the funny moments of that case that I'll share is I, I had a witness out of, I had a witness out of Florida and uh, Jim Blunt had, he had the PhD witness, the double PhDs on and on and on. And my witness just had a high school education. And 
Blunt started his cross-examination. Uh, like, well, you're not Dr. Connor, are you? No, you don't have a PhD. No, you don't have an engineering degree. The classic cross-examination you may have seen Artemis Malikpour talk about today, but just started destroying him. And my case was about a hot water heater fire where a little uh, 14-year-old boy opened the door, a fire flashed out at him, set him on fire. He's horribly burned. And so as Blunt is going through his questions, he says, now, do they store rakes in that same storage room? Yes. Do they have uh, paint cans in that room? Do they have tools in that room, et cetera, et cetera? And my witness had testified that the fire started because when the door was opened, it allowed extra air or oxygen to get into the room, and it pushed unburned LP gas up against the, the burner, and a flash fire occurred and set my client on fire. And there was a defect in the ventilation in the ceiling, which violated the code. But that was the theory, that this door went open, this, this fire occurred. So Blunt got the witness to the point where he said, I want you to turn, Mr. Connor, and look at these 12 fine citizens of Wake County and I, and I want you to answer this question. I want you to answer for the jury why it is on those hundred other times that somebody went and opened that door to that shed where these things were stored and where that hot water heater was located, why a fire didn't occur on those occasions. And I thought to myself, there's my case. What a, what a brilliant question. And my expert, without missing a beat, turns and looks at the jury and, and says this, members of the jury, LP gas works in mysterious ways. And that was his answer. And Jim Blunt turned, he starts walking back to the council table because he'd been examining, standing in front of the witness. And he says, let the record reflect, Madam Court Reporter, that if this fire occurs the way he, he suggests, I will stipulate it works in mysterious ways. So there's the case. I go home, we have closing arguments, and I thought I'd had my fanny beat so bad for five days that I didn't ask the jury for a specific sum of money. I gave some argument about how you remember if you were lighting a, a birthday cake, you may have burned a tip mm -hmm. of your finger. You know how searingly painful that was. I want you to think about this young man had 60% of his body that way. And I talk, talked about how, you know, he would cry when they'd carry him in, debride him, and cut the burn skin off. Closing argument probably lasted 15 minutes. And I just, and I said to the jury, Members of the jury, you're reasonable people. I don't need to stand up here and, and go on and on. You know how horrible this is. You know this is permanent. You know this will never change. I said, he's now a 20-year-old man. So you decide what's fair. Fast forward, jury comes back and awarded $1.7 million. And I had actually filed a statement of monetary relief for $500,000 because I didn't think there was any way a jury would award that much money. But there were two extremely valuable lessons I learned in that. One was never underestimate the power of the jury to see through all the, you know, the give and take of lawyers. Secondly, was to trust the jury that, that, that they get it, they understand and probably the most valuable lesson of all I learned early in my career 
was, don't be afraid to try your case. Don't be afraid to take the really hard case if you think you're right and if you think something wrong has happened, that jury's going to go through that whole maze and figure it out. And and I was candidly, Philip, I, I was just lucky. I mean, I like to say, oh, these great skills. From a lawyer standpoint, Jim Blunt crushed me like you won't believe crushed me. But it was a it was a great lesson I learned about you can charge and you can charge into the overwhelming odds and, and still come out ahead. And so that for me was sort of something that helped get me going uh, in my career. But, you know, fast forwarding and going forward, it is the people in this organization. It's, it's the Wade Birds. It's the Doug Abrams. It's, it's you. It's other people that if I had a certain question about a case or if I wanted to bounce things off about jury selection or whatever, I never placed a call to another member of this trial organization where someone didn't answer my call and they were always willing to talk to me about a case. They're always willing to share an expert with me. They were willing to share their thoughts on how to argue a case, share their thoughts on how to deal with a witness, help me with what kind of problems that I thought, God, how, how am I going to get around this? And so when we talk about the trial organization, it sounds silly, but I feel like I got a lot of ideas. I, lot, I got a lot of trial strategy and trial thoughts from listening to tapes in a car, from coming to seminars and watching the masters speak, from talking to my fellow colleagues in this organization who shared things with me. No matter what anybody tells you, we all stand on the shoulders of those that came before us, and that is doubly true for me. I just feel like I'm very lucky. Don't let anybody kid you in the practice of law. Luck has a lot to do with it. That case I felt was lucky. I had another situation. I tried a impossible case uh, dealing with two young boys that were killed in a bus crash over in Paris, France, and I brought the lawsuit in Onslow County in Jacksonville because one of the children was a Marine gunny sergeant's son. That case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in claims I made against Goodyear Manufacturing, who manufactured a tire on a bus, on a bus that crashed outside of Paris, France. And I lost nine to nothing, and the U.S. Supreme Court just got crushed. But we came back to try the case. And this is where, again, it's a lot of successes in life or luck. It's just good things that happen. So we go into Onslow County to try the case. And when I finished picking the jury, I had 11 Marines or Marine spouses, or I shouldn't call them retired Marines because there's no such thing as retired Marine. But I had 11 of 12 people on, on the bench that were, I mean, on the, in the jury box who were from the Marine Corps. And I had a Marine Corps son. And so we tried that case for two weeks, impossible case. And sure, it goes out. They'd been out about an hour, and they came back and said they had two questions. So we go in. First question, you know, Your Honor, what do we do if one of the jurors uh, has lied in jury selection about being fair? The jury was, was hung 11 to 1. 
Second question, how much longer do we have to deliberate? So I knew, well, they're split 11 to 1. Judge Cobb was the judge. He brought them in, gave them the Allen charge, sent them back out, and then within 10 minutes, they were back with a verdict. And I thought, must have been 11 to 1 against me. I lost the case. And they came back with a really large verdict for us, multi-million dollar verdict for both kids. But there's an example of, I know in my heart, that if I had tried that case in front of a Wake County jury, right. a you know Forsyth County jury or whatever, I very likely would not have gotten that result because one of the jurors made the, made the comment, one child had survived for about a day or two and died. And there was a question of, did you award the one child more in damages than the other child? I learned afterwards that one of the jurors having those discussions, turned to the fellow jurors and said, if you want to award an extra 500000 that's fine. If you want to award an extra $5 million, I will support it. But whatever you award to this child, you're going to award to Sergeant Helm's child because I'm not going back out in that courtroom and looking at a fellow Marine in the eye and tell him that his son's worth anything less than anyone else's child. And so... That told me I had to, I had to simplify with me in that case. And that's been true. I could go through every single, you know, large verdict, every single million dollar verdict I've had. And, and it, there's been something that happened during the trial where I just got lucky. Something happened good for me or something happened with a witness where I, I had an advantage. And I would have to say a lot of this is certain cross-examination techniques or certain ways that I approach jury selection or certain strategies that I would take. I would like to say these were all my great creative mind coming up with these thoughts, but they were suggestions from fellow members of this organization, and they were things that I learned in seminars. They're things that were shared with me by other members of this organization. And so I'm sitting in here in front of you today. I don't consider myself a legend, but I do consider myself extremely lucky and exceptionally blessed to have been a part of this organization for 40 years. And I will continue to be a part of this organization until I hang up my spurs one day. And I would highly recommend to all young lawyers are out there, anybody that's unfortunate enough to have to listen to me ramble on, I would strongly recommend one of the smartest things you could do is join this organization, not just, not just be a member of this organization, but get involved in the organization. Try to get in leadership come to our seminars, talk to your fellow members of this organization. Nobody has a monopoly on creativity. Nobody has a monopoly on ideas. But you can learn so much by being a part of this organization. And the reality is you're going to get so much more in return than you will ever give back. I've tried to be very generous financially with this organization. I've tried to be generous in lecturing when I... You want to have a good result, so I want to know what I did. But I've always received a lot more than I ever gave and eternally thankful for that. And I want to be sure that I 
express that gratitude to uh, this organization. I feel very, very lucky. I'm a lucky guy. Well, I'll tell you this just as a, as a matter of just if I can take personal privilege, you've always been so generous of your time with me right. and resources and yeah. experts, all the things yeah. you mentioned. And I really, really right. appreciate that. And I've enjoyed seeing you in trial and sure. seminars too. This will be my 25th year in the Academy, I guess. And now I'm here at this awesome convention awesome. seeing these people who frankly look like children to me now. Um, so what, what would you want them, the, these young lawyers who are there in their first couple of years, where do, you want, where do you want them to take the Academy over the next 40 years? Well, we both know this. The law is changing rapidly. And best example I can give you is when I, I'm a strong believer in demonstrative evidence. And even early on when I was trying cases, I would take photographs. I'd blow them up to, to eight by tens and I'd put them on a piece of cardboard and I would pass them to the jury. And, and I always had stacks of cardboard photographs and I always had trial notebooks and I would put, I'd write on, on an easel, do all that. And then you move from that to using videotape and, and then now we're, you're going into PowerPoints. But I think moving forward, what I would say to young lawyers is, continue to think outside the box. Best example I give of that, if you go back in the history of the Olympics and, and the high jump 30, 40, 50 years ago or more, everybody would run up to the bar in the high jump and they'd jump forward to try to go over until someone came along named Fosberg, and it was called the Fosberg Flop. And he started, instead of jumping forward over the high bar, he jumped backwards. Everybody in the Olympics today goes over a higher bar going backwards because evidently that will give you more lift and you do it. Well, there are similar things out there in the practice of law that we have not discovered. We haven't figured it out. We have David Ball. We have other people trying to think about how, how can we be more persuasive. But what I would say to young lawyers is watch other great lawyers try cases. Listen to your fellow man and fellow women here in this organization but you experiment. I think that's what's so important for the, for the young people in this organization. You need to experiment. You need to think out of the box. You need to try things. And, and yeah, you're, you're going to fail some, but you're also going to invent the new mousetrap if, if you will continue to explore and be creative. So for young folks, the, the best advice I could give is be a part of this organization, be creative, the other thing I would say to young folks is if you want to be a great trial lawyer, you've got to understand the world around you. Get involved in your community, coach T-ball, work with charitable organizations, work with civic organizations, run for public office if you're so inclined, but be involved in your community and, and be involved uh, in your churches, synagogues, uh, you know, whatever, but the more you're connected to your community, the more you will understand the 12 people in that box. Stay in your ivory tower if you go to the office and go home and watch television. You just stay insul insulated and isolated. You're not going to understand that jury when you go in there to try the case. And you, you need to be out there in your community so that when that person's up there, you can relate to their lives because the only way you're going to win your case is that juror, they have to identify with your client. They've got to have that commonality in some way that they understand. And, and it's those little things like when you're 
putting a witness on or telling a story. And you you talk about they got up that morning, they turned the coffee on because they, you know, they always make coffee for their wife. And as they're walking out the door, they turned and, and said, I love you. And then that person may get killed later that day. What's the last words you heard from your husband? I love you. You know, that's the last thing. What's the last thing, last, you know, common event between your husband? We had coffee together. There's not a person sitting on that jury that hasn't gotten up at the morning, their spouse, their child, their partner, their whatever. They've had a cup of coffee and they've heard the words, I love you. And so if you've got something that can connect people, then you can take it and run with it. So that was a rambling answer. Mm-hmm. But for young people, get involved, take this place to new heights and persevere. There are going to be a lot of challenges along the way from people who are going to try to tinker with the right to jury trial. You need to try to protect it and preserve it. And I believe that because of alternative dispute resolution, which is a good thing, settling cases is a good thing. But if you as a young lawyer can develop skills to be a, a very competent trial lawyer, you will be like the master surgeon that performs the most complex surgeries. You, you'll be like a, the surgeon who was performing heart transplants 30 years ago because we are going to get to the point, sadly, that there's going to be a small group of people out there that really have the skills to go in and try complex cases. And so I'd say for you young folks, develop those skills and you will, you'll be in great demand in the future. But uh, preserve this institution, build this institution, and take it to new heights. You'll be glad you did. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Voices of NCAJ. For more information on the North Carolina Advocates for Justice and how to join or support NCAJ, please visit our website at www.ncaj.com.